Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is sponsored by Femix, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Super excited today. Got Andrew Gruel, who's a, a celebrity chef and owner of slapfish restaurant um before i get into it obviously we're not going to be talking about anything sort of financial related probably but as always this is an investment advice it's not legal advice if you have questions about that talk to your own folks but with all the disclaimers and fun stuff done andrew how you doing hey i'm doing really well thanks for having me on yeah yeah thanks for being on i appreciate it so um, you know, this is a, this is a little bit of a different podcast for me. I usually have sort of cryptocurrency folks on, or you know, fintech folks. So it's fun to have somebody from the real world, somebody who actually does real work for a living, <laughs> to, to talk um, restaurants and food. So um, I, you know, I always like to hear kind of the story about how my guests ended up where they did. So you know, maybe you could talk for a minute about your education, your background, and how you got into like restaurants and running your own business. Certainly, certainly. And I think it's also important to mention that any, um, you know, any crazy spike in Bitcoin is 100% a result of what I've been doing in that space. (laughs) So I'll make this relevant. Yeah, before we get into your background, do you um, do you have crypto? I know I know you're sort of you you make the rounds on crypto Twitter here and there and you know, Wendo and a few others. Is that sort of how you ended up discovering the space? Um, you know, I've always been curious about it for years, you know, kind of following and trying to really understand. Frankly, I believe that it is that it is going to be a huge part of our future. So I think it's really important that uh, especially from the business perspective, I really understand how to dabble if, if not um, exchange in that arena. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I, uh, I won't hold you to that, but it would be cool if, you know, maybe you could look into cryptocurrency being accepted at your restaurants or something. Yeah, 100%. We're actually in the process of doing that. My vice president of operations, who's a good friend, with me, he is really deep in it. So every day I get a nice earful from him and I'm letting him run with that. So <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, no one can now say that you and I aren't encouraging um, cryptocurrency being accepted everywhere. So well done, us. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, tell, tell, tell my listeners about your background. Okay, great, great. So I, uh, you know, I'm a Jersey boy, uh, grew up in Jersey, and I never anticipated that the restaurant industry hospitality would be my career. Um, You know, like many people, it was just a job when I was 13, 14, getting into restaurants, washing dishes, working in catering companies, and that continued on. As I got into college, I went to a small liberal arts college up in Maine, Bates College. Um, You know, my time there was spent uh, over intellectualizing um, old philosophy and really working in the lobster industry. So I was working at a restaurant there. I was working in the lobster world, lobstering Maine, obviously, that being their number one trade source. And then uh, after a couple of years there, I realized, hey, this is what I want to be doing. I don't want to be spending money on a education that I'm not going to put to use immediately. So I left college and I immediately started traveling around the United States, working for different chefs, doing an apprenticeship, and eventually did go back to school at Johnson Wales University. And I did get a culinary arts degree, ended up on the East Coast working with the Ritz Carlton. And while I was going to while I was there, I went to school uh, in the business program, got a food marketing, food service management degree while working full time. And then I just allowed that to kind of continue taking me through the gauntlet of uh, various kitchens and operations. Eventually in 2009, right before the economy took a crap, it's, you know, we went into that recession. I was running uh, two or three restaurants, about 600 seats under my belt and the economy took a dump. And I said, you know what, I got to get out. 
this is an opportunity for me to follow through on a passion project of mine. And I had an opportunity to work for the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California on a program. I was always into seafood, really, and marine biology was never really adept at science. But um, they were looking for a chef with a marketing background to really connect chefs to sustainable seafood sources, learning that world from aquaculture all the way across to um, wild fisheries, both domestically and internationally. So I took on this granted program, ran the grant for two or three years, and just fell absolutely in love with the seafood world and used that to parlay into a business opportunity that I started Slapfish. And I tried opening a restaurant initially in 2011, but there was no money to be had in a restaurant space, especially in the midst of a recession. So I, I kind of bootstrapped and spent every single penny I had, including uh, leveraging myself out with as much debt as possible and, and started it as a food truck. Um, went from one to four food trucks over an eight month period and then quickly uh, took advantage of the brand equity I had built up to start a single brick and mortar in an old dilapidated bagel shop in Huntington Beach, California, and used that as the flagship location whereby I was able to scale it into a multi-unit franchise operation. So, you know, that's a bit of the really, you know, kind of quick and dirty history. Nice. So were you like the, the first food truck you bought was it like you driving it around and you in the back of the, the truck making making meals for people? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I went down to this. There was four big food truck lots here in Southern California that all serviced the construction industry. At that time, there wasn't anybody doing this gourmet food truck thing. We see it everywhere now, but it was interesting because in 2010, 2011, that was an unknown. Um, there was one truck up in L.A., Koji truck, which Roy Choi, everybody – knows him. I mean, he's become the grandfather of this industry and, and beyond he was moving, he was doing like a kind of Korean Mexican fusion and he was, he was making a name for himself. So he had, he had certainly blazed a little bit of a path. And I, uh, went to this lot and I remember still specifically this day going up to one of the guys that drove the trucks. And I said, Hey, how much do you make a week? He's like, I bring in about four fifty a week. The truck, it was just a blank white canvas. And I said, look, I'll give you $500. Let me have your truck for a week. You know, no license, no real mm-hmm. wherewithal and what the heck I was doing. But the guy's like, all right, there's 50 bucks more than I make. So I, I, I kind of just sketched out this Slapfish logo threw the banner up on the truck, um, connected with some of my seafood guys who I'd already built those relationships and, you know, kind of cutting out the middlemen in that supply chain. And I just drove around selling fish tacos and lobster rolls. I had no employees. It was, it was literally, you know, get up at six in the morning, go load the truck with ice, buy the drinks at the commissary, bring the product in because you're not connected to a kitchen there. So I'd have to go from, you know, I'd, I'd have like eight hours where the ice plates in the refrigerator on the truck could work. So I had eight hours worth of inventory that I had to set prep and sell immediately. Um, and it was just me. It was a one man show. Awesome. So would you go to like construction sites to try to offload this stuff or would you drive around like the fancy sort of suburban lunch places? Yeah, exactly. I would go to office buildings or um, uh, colleges, you know, trying to hit up spots. And then at night I would do three spots, three stops. Right. So in the morning I do a lunch in an office, office park area. And then the evening afternoon I would find whether there was like a fair or an event going on, whether it was a church event and I would just roll up right unannounced, uninvited. And then at night, I would usually go behind a bar. I'd find like a bar where there was a big alley behind it. And then I'd pull up behind the bar and then I would sling lobster rolls and fish tacos. Sometimes I'd do like burgers, what have you. Um, And uh, between each stop, I'd have to go back to the commissary, load up the truck, get the electricity back through the generator and uh, and get it set up. But there was no there was no framework for regulation. It was just kind of the Wild West. Yeah, because I. You know, that, that's the lawyer in me being like, oh, Jesus, don't you need permits? And like, because that's a pretty heavily regulated space these days. But you're saying like back in 10 years ago, like a lot of municipalities didn't even have regulations on this stuff. None, none at all. I didn't need, I didn't even have a business license to be operating in these areas. You know, the truck was already permitted through the health department, but loosely permitted because most of the people that it was servicing were these construction sites. And look, let's be honest, these guys, they've got stomachs to steal. I mean, they're washing everything down with coffee or tequila and, uh, you know, a couple day old taco, they could take it down fine. And even if they did get sick, they weren't calling the health department. So these things were flying completely under the radar of any regulatory agency. So uh, I've been to a few lobster roll places. Aren't there like two different kinds of lobster rolls? Is, it, is there like the Maine and the Connecticut or something? There's like the cold and the warm. 
you got it. And, uh, you know, you might as well consider those as, uh, you know, as conflicted as uh, a Biden versus Trump, because, <laughs> um, you know, even though they're both politicians, well, arguably, uh, you know, you they're, they're both lobster rolls. There's a difference. So you're right. Connecticut is hot, tossed in butter, nothing else on a soft split top butter roll. And then the main roll is tossed in mayo, cold in the in the warm split top butter roll. Sure. So which which one were you offering? Well, well, I'm a pacifist, so for me, it's always about bringing, bringing two parties together. So our lobster roll has become iconic for being a combo of the two. So what I do is I I warm the meat, I toss it in mayo, butter, and a dash of lemon juice. So it's it's like it's the pers- the perfect amalgamation of those two sides of each camp. Oh Jesus, I, I'm lucky I just had lunch. Otherwise, I'd be drooling all over my mic. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Um, and uh, so on the taco side, I guess being out, being out West, you're probably more of like the corn tortilla, like the traditional Mexican tacos. Yeah. So we did uh, gr- great question and great point similar to the lobster roll wars on the East coast. And so Cal, the fish tacos, I mean, you got to have the corn tortilla, you got to have right. the straw on top, but of course being an East coast guy, um, you know, I was flying in the face of uh, normalcy in Southern California. So what I did was I found somebody who could make a hybrid corn and flour taco, right? And I did this because I love the structure of flour. That gluten gives you more strength to the taco. So if you want to have a saucier, more substantial taco, you're not going to rip through the shell. The corn falls apart so easily, but I love the flavor of the corn. So I found somebody to make a, it's called a Mazina taco shell. And I made it about eight inches so that I could pack it and overfill the taco with with, um, you know, with, with more than three ounces of fish. And that's, that's once again, that's our shtick. It's, it's like an open faced two handed burrito almost. That's amazing. Oh man, that sounds so good. So I, I love the like hybrid approach you take to, to this, to the food wars, so to speak, that's a novel way to do it. And it's a nice way to please everyone, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I try not to do it specifically with the ingredients per se, right? I try and use the foundation of the original ingredients because to me, fusion, I don't know, I'm not a huge fusion food guy um, because I think people over overdo it and it just tastes like a mess. But what it, for me, it's about taking like taking the two concepts and combining them um, as opposed to manipulating the ingredients from a fusion perspective. Right. Yeah. Speaking of fusion, I, I have to ask you this. What is the worst food in the world and why is it pineapple pizza? <laughs> Uh, well, it, that's a, thank you for asking me that. Um, and, and, uh, because I've talked at length on this, it's not just, it's, it, it's not just, uh, you know, preference, but two things. Number one, pineapple is really, really sweet and pineapple, you know, sweet ingredients on pizza for me, sweet and savory when there's an overkill of sweet just doesn't work. But number two, when the pineapple cooks, it releases liquid. There's so much pineapple is like 80% water and the rest is sugar. Um, so when it releases that liquid, all it does is just turn your pizza into a soggy mess. I've said the compromise on pineapple on pizza is, is that if you make a nice spicy pineapple salsa and perhaps put it over a pizza at the end as a condiment that's got some prosciutto in there and some heftier meat, saltier meats. That's maybe a compromise whereby you can get away with it. But when you start pouring pineapple juice on crispy pizza, all you're going to end up with is a wet napkin. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to play this clip over and over because <laughs> I've died on this hill for about three years on Twitter and I've gotten so much hate for it. Even Wendo's like, oh, no, I love pineapple pizza, but I find it disgusting and reprehensible. I mean, wars could be fought over this, I, I tell you. <laughs> and one very disappointing thing about 2020, I actually saw that DoorDash, I think it was, released all their data and that pineapple pizza was like the biggest ordered food of 2020. And I was like, oh, that seems about right. Yeah, well, that goes along with DoorDash well. So um, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, good. I'm happy we're in, in stern agreement on the terribleness of pineapple pizza. Maybe <laughs> we can get a law passed outlawing it yes that's um, when it comes to big government i'm totally in favor of that (laughs) element (laughs) well good so so cool so you started with one food truck and you sort of hustled and worked your ass off got a few more you got this brick and mortar place um and you sort of alluded to that you have like it's almost like a franchise now so are 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 the are the locations you have across the country now and you have i think 25 locations are those mainly franchise locations Correct. So outside of our territory, we started to franchise in order to scale and grow. So originally, you know, our mission is really to get people to eat more seafood, more the right types of seafood. So we're, we're 
very, very, very um, focused on responsible, well-managed, quote, sustainable seafood. And the idea from the start was build this to scale. So being a guy who had come from the fine dining world, I wanted to be able to scale fine dining, but at the cost and convenience of faster food. Um, so, you know, not dissimilar to what Chipotle's motto was in the beginning. I mean, I think they did a really good job of elevating burritos and tacos, but also merging in sustainability and the organic nature of how they source their ingredients, um, absent any of the uh, recent health issues, but with Chipotle. Uh, so, so that was our motto as well. So I realized to scale, I had really only had, well, three options, right? after we built the first one out was I could just continue to use, um, you know, store level profits to grow, but that would be a much, that would be a very slow approach Two, I could of course bring on outside investment, whether it's family funds or, or not my personal family funds, but you know, um, family offices or private equity, um, or three, I could grow through franchising, which really is, 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 um, a financing vehicle, but it's also giving somebody the opportunity to be their own boss and entrepreneur. And, um, you know, option A, I had tapped out all those resources, um, uh, you know, in terms of friends and family and and self-growth through our first store. Option B, I kept going to private equity and, and small investment firms, and they kept saying, get to 10 locations and we'll invest. You know, um, nobody wanted to come in on the ground floor. So it was, it was off to option C. Now, option C, when it comes to franchising, I mean, that's a whole nother world. What I've told people is, is that when you become a franchisor, you're no longer a restaurateur. You're basically in the compliance world. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's what we did. I mean, you know, we, we registered our, our, our franchise, our FDD, um, um, hit certain States and began marketing of the franchise deals and, and sold, sold a ton of franchises. Cool. So do, do the franchisees then just like pay a licensing fee every year? Is that, and then there's like a revenue split. Yeah, we take a percentage of royalties, um, you know, uh, and and it ranges based upon the the deals and when we sign them. But anywhere between like four percent of sales and six percent of sales, um, and that includes marketing fees and and you know, and then we uh, you know we oversee everything in conjunction with the franchisee. But really, they run their own store. I mean, you know, they fund their own store and they operate it as owner operators. Um, we've got some really really great franchisees who are independent, you know, uh, scrappy entrepreneurs. So it's been very very effective for us sure and i'm sure you have to be in pretty close contact with those folks for like sourcing and messaging and all of everything that goes into running a restaurant 100 so i mean we manage all the marketing we 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 oversee and manage all the supply chain all of the menu development um you know they're really on the ground dealing with the human element of being your own boss and running a business right uh, and when you're an entrepreneur or when you own your own business, a lot of that is psychology, right? Counseling, right. Um, you know, the human element is, is the, the scary part of, of really running a business. Sure. Well, one thing I want to ask you about, and you've mentioned a few times now, is um, this idea of sustainable uh, fish or sustainable, you know, um, I guess, lobster and things. What, what makes it sustainable? Do you get stuff from farms that like use organic methods or is it like um, caught fish that's fished in a certain way? Or I'm just curious what that means. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, you know, and the calculus behind the way in which we define something as sustainable, of course, has various layers and levels to it. But it just generally, it's really supply and demand. So as long, if the demand doesn't outstrip the supply and on a projected basis, then we can determine that that stock is sustainable, meaning that it replenishes itself quickly enough such that we don't just see this biomass declining. Um, but then, you know, and, and to use a specific example, on the East Coast, right, like cod used to be the most plentiful um, seafood species, but then it was just completely overfished and the natural environment that the cod didn't reproduce quickly enough. And then you start to decimate the supply. It's no, not dissimilar to what you see with um, terrestrial based animals that go extinct. So there's various measures and mechanisms whereby you can manage stocks such that you can only catch a certain amount and then it's monitored and it's scientifically, um, you know, kind of assessed on a quarterly basis. And in those fish fishermen operate within a, a, that framework, right? So we only buy seafood from stocks where it's being managed properly on the wild side. But then on the farm side, because there's, you know, people don't realize how much, how much aquaculture, farm seafood we consume in the world and specifically in the United States, but 55% of all seafood consumed in the world is farm now. We've, we've eclipsed 
wild seafood. And that's not a bad thing because properly farmed seafood um, is good for the environment and it also relieves pressure off the wild stocks. It's incredibly healthy for you. Early on in the world of aquaculture, they were just, I mean, they were they were they were doing things to these fish, you know, throwing antibiotics on it and chemicals to keep it alive and then selling it to us. And we were eating it specifically in, you know, China and Indonesia and a lot of these countries. So what we've done now, of course, there's a lot of agencies that oversee this, but we only work with farms where they're exactly, they're using organic ingredients. They're farming it in a very natural, pristine environment, and it's incredibly transparent. So I visit the farm, I meet with the the feed people, you know, I know the farmers um, and, and, and that's no different than we see with a lot of these niche Arti- artisanal uh, meat brands as well. So mm-hmm. all the fish we serve meat, you know, falls into one of those two categories and has just kind of a full level of transparency to it. Gotcha. Well, that's great. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I hope more restaurants take that seriously, because as the world grows, it becomes more and more important to eat things that are sustainable. Yep. 100%. And the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, seafood is a, is a low is lower on the consumption scale than like beef and chicken, etc. Because a lot of people are confused or scared about seafood, right? Does it have mercury? Does it have, you know, X chemicals in it? How do I cook it? How do I eat it? So there's a lot of confusion about seafood. And instead, we relegate ourselves to eating beef or chicken. But ironically, that's actually worse for the environment than some of the questionable seafood species. So aquaculture and seafood, there's an opportunity to feed millions of people economic, you know, you know, at a, um, an inexpensive protein that's really, really healthy with your omega-3s, your DHAs, all those great fatty acids. So for us, there's an education element to just get people to eat more seafood overall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like Japan or something, their obesity rates are minimal and, you know, heart disease is very low and stuff. And it's probably in due to a large part because of all the fish they eat. You're 100% correct. And we on the in the Western culture, we have a surplus of omega six fatty acids, which comes from the meat that we eat because they feed it a lot of soy and corn. And as a result of omega six, um, um, you know, having a surplus of omega sixes and a deficiency of omega threes, that results in things like hypertension and high blood pressure. And a lot of what we see is just um, chronic ailments throughout Western health. So it's very fascinating that I mean, there's been studies that show that six of the eight leading causes of death in the United States can be alleviated to some degree through a regular consumption of healthy omega-3 fatty acids only found in seafood. Well, there you go, listeners, eat your fish. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, do you have any tips for, for people on like cooking fish? I, you know, I try to cook fish and it, you're right. It is like a little harder to cook or like a little more intimidating, I guess, to cook than, you know, a chicken breast or a steak or something. Of course, because it's so delicate, right? I mean, it you know it falls apart so easily, and you don't necessarily know when it's finished or how long to cook it, where to cook it, how to cook it. I always tell everybody: start off the best gateway recipe for getting into cooking seafood is just don't overcomplicate it, right? Pick flavors you like. If you're someone who really likes, um, you know, Mexican flavors, use some chilies, use some lime, um, you know, a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, salt, pepper. Ro- you know, just rub it all over the seafood wrap it in aluminum foil and bake it in a 350 degree oven for about 20 minutes or so. Um, That's a great way to just keep it clean, keep it simple. You're not going to mess it up. And then, you know, but once again, if you want to have Japanese flavors in there, maybe a dash of soy sauce, a little bit of miso, a little bit of citrus as well, then you can start to explore that different fish with that cooking method, right? So then that gives you an opportunity to taste new fish and to find out what you like. And then from there, after working with it, you can start to move into more direct cooking methods like on a grill or on a flat top or on a stove top. But um, either way, when you cook it simply in that oven, in that, you know, kind of convection um, um, method, you know, you can just flake the fish into tacos or into sandwiches or into, you know, just on top of a salad. It's a real easy way to just get to know your fish. Listen, I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and all seem to have their problems, whether it's a lack of volume, bad or buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle tons of transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. 
They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, www.femex.com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Thanks. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even suppose a decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. Who said DeFi isn't for Bitcoiners? Discover BPRO, created by Money on Chain, that allows you to earn a rent on Bitcoin positions and gain free leverage. With MOC liquidity mining, BPRO holders also get Money on Chain rewards every single day. So yes, with a Bitcoin on steroids like BPRO, DeFi is definitely for Bitcoiners. Learn more about BPRO at moneyonchain.com slash Esquire. Again, that's moneyonchain.com slash E-S-Q-U-I-R-E. So you've, in addition to your, you know, massively successful 25 location restaurant, you also have um, appearances on, on television. I saw that you've been a judge on the Food Network. Um, what, what, was, what was the show you were a judge on for the Food Network? Um, so I've been a judge on a couple shows, guest judges on Chop, Chop Jr. Um, gosh, I don't even remember some of the other ones. And then I was a, a resident judge on a show we launched called uh, Food Truck Face Off. Um, that was hosted by Jesse Palmer and we, and we had some great guest judges on there. Uh, and then I, and then I switched networks and went over to FYI and hosted a show there as well. Um, and then ended up back with food network. So been a little bit bouncing all over the place. Awesome. What, uh, what's been your favorite experience on the sort of TV circuit? Um, I would probably say judging chop junior. That was the coolest experience. Um, you know, these eight year olds, nine year olds, 10 year olds, they're phenomenal chefs and, (laughs) You know, I, I don't want to say that food TV is scripted. It's not scripted. It's produced, right? So it's impossible to really be able to capture things just on the spot. So it's a lot of start and stop and stop and go. Um, but when it comes to Chop Junior with these kids, that's the most authentic show. It really is 30 minutes. They're on the clock. I mean, these kids are crying, cutting their fingers. This is the real deal. And uh, when I guess judge that, it was about two months before Meghan Markle started dating Prince. And we, uh, you know, I got to know her. So she was my guest judge, uh, Meghan Markle. So I can uh-huh. say that I'm, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a level of royalty myself now. That's very cool. Yes, I think you're honorary royalty now. Uh, I did see, the, I think they might be starting a podcast too. So I might have a little competition from your friend, Megan. Oh boy. All right. Well, it wouldn't be a surprise, <laughs> but uh, you know. Larry, uh, well, I got you first, part. at least. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's very cool. And you've also been on the Today Show too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, been, been lucky enough to do that kind of circuit Today Show, Good Morning America, and a lot of those, those, those morning shows. So um, look, people love food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do they make you drink white wine while you're <laughs> in the morning? Don't, don't the Today Show host women drink white wine? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, you know, it was funny. I was doing it a while. I did it a while back with part of this like summer cook series. And it was when Matt Lauer was running it. Right. And, um, you know, it was, uh, an interesting time, but Carson Daly was the guy cooking with me. So we didn't have any white wine. I kept, um, you know, I was really disappointed he wasn't wearing black nail polish, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it was still a cool experience. Yeah. That brings me back to like my MTV high school <laughs> angsty days. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Bingo. Um, uh, okay. So I, I sort of want to switch focus a little bit now, um, and talk about, COVID-19 and the lockdowns and, and 2020. And I know you've been tweeting a lot about this. You've been very vocal given the recent changes in, in California's rules in particular, as well as New York's. But I just thought um, maybe you could give a little bit of background on how 
COVID-19 has like impacted you and your business over the last year? Yeah, of course, of course. And, um, you know, I've been vocal at the expense of possibly getting canceled, but, uh, so I think that's an important <laughs> caveat to throw out there. Um, because it's, I mean, it's like, if you question anything nowadays, then you're just lumped into this conspiracy theorist category. It's, it's crazy. Um, but yeah. nonetheless, it's forced me to question things just as a result of the effect it's had on the industry as a whole. And then of course, in my own ecosystem, our restaurants, um, you know, we're, we're, we're no, not dissimilar to what's happening across with any restaurant um, that when you get unilaterally shut down by the government, absent any relief package, you know, we're sitting there scrambling, trying to figure out a, what do these rules even mean, right? So first and foremost, there's a breakdown of communication between the actual rules and how we're supposed to be operating on the ground. We're not working, and I've said this for years, that health departments are seen as the enemy, but really in the restaurant and hospitality world, health departments are our best friend. You know, They're there to teach us and show us how to operate in a sanitary world. And you know, some health department um, um, inspectors are really are our friends. Like I can call them up and say, Hey, you know, what, what temperature should I be keeping this, these utensil holding, you know, water, you know, the water for this or that, et cetera. And they work with you. But when it comes to COVID now, there's a disparity. Nobody is, you know, it's, they've been deputized and we need somebody who can teach us exactly how we should be operating so we can stay ahead of the science. So that's first and foremost. And then secondly, you know, when we just have to shut down, you know, we're, we've got families, you know, that work for us. We've got, there's a human element to this and having to lay everybody off or keep them on payroll at the expense of us losing tons and tons of money. It's, there's almost a moral dilemma there. And it's been, it's been, um, you know, pushed down to independent business owners to make those decisions. And I, and, and one example I give is, is that when the first, when the CARES Act passed in the beginning in April, an element of, of some of the new regulation was that if somebody was had to quarantine, right? So let's say you live with someone who tested positive for COVID and then you have to quarantine uh, and that employee has to quarantine for two weeks. They passed a law that said the restaurants, the businesses are required to pay those people for two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't get a rebate on that from the government. Like we don't get a kickback. That in itself has increased our labor costs 4%. I mean, the average margins of a successful restaurant in this industry are 5%. So that can wipe out margins for, for any restaurant um, and it's being pushed down onto small business to take the hit. So there's just a lot of, I think, a lot of, um, you, you know, there, there's a huge gap between uh, what, what we know and what we're being told to do and how it's all supposed to effectively function. Yeah. To your first point, it's really interesting too, is I, I agree that there's like this bizarre hyper politicization of this topic. And it's like, if, if you, dare speak even negatively of any lockdown you're labeled as like an anti-masker like right-wing nut job but yeah. on the other hand if you're like no sensible regulation makes sense you know like if there's data to support certain things you know that that makes sense you know like if if it's like okay we'll have 25 percent capacity to limit the number of people so people can safely social distance and things like that makes sense but to just say like oh you you question the lockdown so you're an anti-science bigot is like the worst sort of politics i can imagine but it's everywhere and twitter is the worst for it too oh yeah i know and i need to get out of the twitter world because it's weird. <laughs> like like that starts to you start to think that that's reality and it's and it's really not but sadly i feel as if part of what we see on twitter um has bled into reality mm -hmm. uh, over the last 10 months that's the scary thing no, I agree. And I mean, another thing, too, is you talk about the sort of scope of the regulation, like these regulations were passed quickly, and most of them weren't even really passed, like none of them, at least to my knowledge, really go through the legislative process. They're typically health orders that are issued at the executive level, written by sort of career bureaucrats. Um, and I don't want to knock health departments, government employees work hard. I get it, but like a lot of health departments prior to COVID, particularly local health departments, like they were just tracking STDs. You know, a 19 year old would get the clap and they'd have to call them and sort of trace it back. They're really good at that. They're not super great at like managing widespread global pandemics and the really kind of hairy legislative process of passing like 
specific laws that are constitutional that also, you know, properly consider all the sort of nuances to business and politics and economics that these these laws should have. So yeah, you you end up kind of getting these ham-fisted laws shoved through at the local executive level. And then these politicians who sort of are, I hate to say it, but a lot of them are kind of drunk on power going through and being like, no, we need to shut shut everything down. You know, we're willing to tolerate half the small businesses in our region going under if, you know, if it slows the spread of COVID. And it's like, well, you, I don't know if that's allowed under the constitution, first of all. And second of all, I don't know if that's good policy. And third of all, if it's policy, it should be going through the legislature, through elected officials and not through unelected government health departments. So I, I know that's a lot to unpack and that's sort of a, maybe like a little bit of a tangent of mine, but I do get frustrated when everyone's like, well, just follow these rules. But then you step back and you're like, well, look who wrote the rules and are they fair? And why, why are they sort of positioned the way they are? Like, why are restaurants a target? And then like bars and casinos are open and things like that. There's just all of these sort of competing interests that don't seem to be properly thought out or reflected in, in the policy itself. I could, I mean, that was perfectly said. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I don't think that's an, I don't think that's an irresponsible statement, nor do I think it's an unreasonable approach. Um, but you realize that even that that uh, soliloquy itself would put you in um, the anti-mask pro-Trump category. <laughs> right. and, and that's the funny thing. I didn't vote for Trump. I wear a mask when I go out of the house. I, you know, I take COVID seriously. It's a novel coronavirus and it has a pretty high mortality rate compared to the flu. So like I acknowledge all of those things. It's been a serious thing that's, you know, stopped the global economy and its tracks for a year. But on the other hand, you know, I think the Supreme Court just said in a, in a ruling they issued on a New York law that the Constitution doesn't get put in a drawer during a global pandemic. Like, you still have to balance all these laws against liberty, against constitutional rights, against the freedom of movement and the freedom of commerce and the freedom of people to make their own decisions. And everyone's situation's drastically different, right? Like, you know, if, if you live with your 85-year-old grandfather who has hypertension and diabetes, like you're probably going to be a lot more careful than if you're a 20-year-old college kid and your decisions are going to be different. So to like put these blanket rules on everyone, like I understand it from a sort of a macro policy point of view, but there also has to be a, an analysis done on the other side of, well, are we going too far? And you know, it seems like, well, let's talk in particular about California shutting down outdoor dining, because that's, I think that's really when you kind of dug, dug in on a lot of these things and made a lot of good points. My understanding is you guys had to like buy a bunch of shit for the outdoor dining stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And even prior to that, we had to buy a bunch of shit, um, to use your terminology for, <laughs> the, for the indoor dining. So originally, um, originally we had to get all this plexiglass. We spent thousands of dollars to, to, to really almost create this labyrinth within our restaurants. And then they shut down indoor dining and didn't open it back up. So, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got, as I've joked, I've got a warehouse full of plexiglass I could, I could sell right now. And then it was okay. Well then let's double down. Outdoor dining seems unequivocally to be the answer, right? We saw, and this isn't a political statement, this is merely observation, but we saw months and months and months of millions of people protesting for various causes on both sides of the aisle, outdoors, and headline after headline said zero spikes, did not cause a spike. The protests were 100% safe because you're outdoors. Okay, great, that's really good news. And that's what I kept heralding across Twitter. This is good news, right? Because you have this, this scenario whereby millions of people are in relatively close quarters, but outdoors, some masked, some not masked, and, you've, and you see no, no, no real spike. So that's mm -hmm. really good news. And then a couple months later, they're saying outdoor dining is shut down because of the risk of a spread. Well, that goes against the entire narrative and the data is not even there to prove it. So we just spent all of this money to equip 
outdoor dining with outdoor heaters and, you know, creating like miniature, um, you know, um, um, you know, little beach zones. I mean, we didn't do that, but uh, lots of money. And now we're told, okay, you can't have outdoor dining. And, and it's like, where the heck's the science? Come on, this is absurd. And that was really my approach. Like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm an attorney, so I understand the Constitution. From a constitutional law perspective, the burden when, when a government wants to restrict constitutional rights like this, like the freedom of movement, the freedom of commerce, you know, things like that, the government has to show that the law is, quote, narrowly tailored and meets a compelling state interest. And I'd argue that these laws aren't particularly narrowly tailored. And I'd also, there's also another idea that the government has the burden of proof to show that these laws are required or necessary to, you know, go for their compelling state interests. So when, when you look at the data and you're like, well, are, are people getting sick when they're outside and eating at restaurants when they're appropriately socially distanced at their table? Like, I, I don't, I mean, I agree with you. I, I haven't seen any data to suggest that. And so you're like, well, no, it's the, it's not our burden to show that it's safe. It's the government's burden to show that it's dangerous. If they want to take away those sort of liberties from us. And again, I will go back to your point. Like even, even talking about this, I'm like, people will think I'm like a right-wing crazy person just by suggesting that like, I think that the government ought to prove its burden to show that outdoor dining is dangerous. And I don't think that's like a particularly right-wing thing to say. I think that's a sensible thing to say as an American and as somebody who's paying attention to say, now, now hold on, like if the government's going to go and basically tell us to do something, there should be a pretty good reason for that. And if there isn't a good reason, we ought to say, why are you doing that? And so I think you're starting to see more people take that approach and that sort of mindset, but not enough, in my opinion. I mean, I agree with you. It's like, if, if you tell us for months and months that being outdoors is safe, like, I'd think like, okay, California is the perfect place to eat outdoors. Like in New York right now, it's the middle of December and it's cold as shit. So I probably wouldn't want to eat outside. But if I'm in Los Angeles or San Diego, yeah, I'll eat out on a patio during the day. It's probably 60, 70 degrees there. So why not? So to just shut that down just seems unnecessary. And it seems like a good way to piss people off because you're like passing these laws that are super restrictive, but you're not getting much benefit out of them. Of course, of course. And I think that one thing that's not taken into consideration, and I've spoken a bit about this recently, is just this law of unintended consequences. And when we have, um, it, well, I guess it's not even legislation, but when we have government overreach that is uh, ill thought out, what ends up happening is, is that people say, you've just gone too far, and then they disregard the entirety of the move, right? So what you're seeing now is people are, are rebelling and they're like, well, you know, now we're polarized. So screw it. I'm going to open indoor dining as well. You know, we, we fought back and, and I said, I'm not doing it. Like I'm going to continue serving outdoors because I feel as if it's more dangerous for people to then not dine outdoors. So, you know, if you see this through, if somebody's coming to eat outside in a socially distanced environment, in, in an environment whereby we're all trained and taught in, self, in, in health and safety and sanitation, we have cert, we're serve safe certified. Um, if we tell them, okay, you can't come and have your Wednesday night dinner here that you might be having with your neighbors or even just with your family, instead they're gonna go and dine indoors with, at their own home with potentially neighbors or somebody else. And we know by the numbers that that's actually more dangerous. So are we, it is an unintended consequence of all of this is that now we're putting people into riskier situations. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, what about like the servers too? Like there's, I suppose you could probably make that similar argument about like the 20 year old bus boy who's, you know, working and probably being careful at work in a, a clean environment where, everyone's wearing masks. And if, if you're like, no, we have to close down for a couple months, that 20 year old's probably going to be like at house parties doing beer bongs and, you know, not wearing a mask and like, what's more likely to spread COVID. So there there's unintended consequences, I think on the employee side too. And then not to mention, not just the health costs, like, okay, then that person's out of work. They don't have money. They can't pay rent. 
Um, they can't buy stuff. They can't pay their taxes. And it, it all just has this terrible cascading impact. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does. So, um, you know, I think that's what we're seeing around the horn right now. And, you know, on the one hand, it's good to see businesses step up reasonably and rationally. Um, but I also do worry about the slippery slope that comes with doing so, because then it starts to take on a life of its own, which, which then, you know, then you start to splice in this kind of anarchistic viewpoint, um, you know, hard right libertarianism, whereby then it, it's just screw it all. And, and that's just as dangerous. So, so it's a fine, there's a fine line to walk. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think governments by passing unduly restrictive regulations are potentially flirting with people taking that point of view, right? Like, like you mentioned a little bit ago, the more dumb laws you pass, the more people are going to be like, well, this law is dumb. What about the other ones? <laughs> and that's yeah. not, that's not a good thing broadly for society. Um, and maybe some people would argue it, it is. I don't. Um, I think the rule of law is important. And that's why I think that unjust laws are, should be checked by the courts. And I, I was very happy to see the Supreme Court push back on, on that church regulation coming out of New York. And I wouldn't be surprised if other regulations over time are deemed unconstitutional overreaches by local municipalities. But we'll see. I, I mean, there's at least it seems like, hopefully, and I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on this, but it hopefully there's an end in sight. I mean, I saw the vaccines started rolling out this week and Moderna should be approved here in a, a week or so. And so those will enter the market. Are you optimistic on the vaccine front? Um, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm also not a scientist, nor do I have any real, um, you know, history studying the development of vaccines and the effects that they've had and how rapidly this thing has been rolled out. So I don't want to be negative because once again, if I even question it, suddenly I'm an anti-vaxxer. Uh, but, but um, you know, I would just say that uh, I certainly believe, um, I certainly believe that, um, how do I put this? Um, you know, the vaccine rollout should go to those in the high risk categories first, right? Because if there is a theoretical risk related to the vaccine, we should be measuring risk. Um, you know, it should be a risk analysis. And if I'm at a, in a high risk category, then that risk certainly could outweigh any of any potential side effects. And therefore, um, based upon what they've done with their studies rolling out this vaccine, you know, it, 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 then it should be a healthy outcome. But when it comes to vaccinating children or those in a low risk category, you know, I think the verdict to some degree is still out. Yeah. And I know, like, I think the Pfizer vaccine is not even allowed to be administered to children. It wasn't tested. So that's probably a okay. long way out. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I, and I think that's how the rollout's been consistently is focusing on, you know, frontline healthcare workers and high risk individuals and in nursing homes and things. And, you know, my hope is, you know, obviously, like, I hope that as few people get sick as possible, and the, hopefully the vaccine helps that. And then, you know, my hope on sort of the political side and on you guys' side is that it gives local politicians cover to say, okay, the numbers are down, the hospitalizations are going down, we can start to relax some of these rules, let people get back to work, let people get back to their lives. Um, and we can sort of hopefully put this chapter behind us in the spring. And, uh, you know, and, and another hopeful thing is that by then, not every small business in the United States has gone under. Yep, yep. So I know to that end, um, you've recently put together a GoFundMe, right? Yes. Yep. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that uh, obviously created a lot of frustration across the entirety of not just, you know, not just the restaurant industry, the small business community were these unilateral mandates to shut down with no relief. And, you know, where, where for me from the psychological side and the warm and fuzzy piece of this is like, there wasn't just no monetary relief, but there was no leadership when it came to look, we're going to help, like, don't worry, you know, a pat on the back, a coaching from our leaders to say, we know this is difficult. We're going to legislate. We're going to work this out. You guys, you know, no sales tax. We're going to wipe out whatever debts are due some sort of a, 
um, you know, a helping hand, even, even a psychological helping hand. But instead it was like, this is what we've got to do. Like, that's it. No, you know, and then it just, there was, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be trying to be careful with my words. So we said, look, if the government's not going to provide a relief package and we're watching these headlines and people are arguing back and forth about the stimulus and the relief, et cetera. And it's just so political. Um, it's just so, you know, they're, 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 the people creating these packages are on, are on another, in another world. And we said, we need to put something together right away to be able to help the struggling restaurant workers right now, today, who can't make rent. These people have lost hours or lost jobs. And it spurred from, obviously, I, you know, I kind of went on a viral rant um, that got picked up. Uh, I was a bit emotional. And from that, you know, there was a groundswell of support of people coming to me and saying, hey, how can we give you money? How can we help your business? Why don't you start a GoFundMe to help your business? And the last thing I want to do is grift off of this, right? For my own to enrich myself. We've heard way too many stories about that and people do that. So I said, look, we don't need anything, but let's put together a fund so that we can help some of these struggling out of work restaurant workers. And that was it. I mean, you know, the real framework is that we're going to distribute money in denominations of no more than $500 just to, just to help people kind of bridge to the next stage, whether they're awaiting unemployment benefits or whether they're awaiting um, um, loans or just more hours or what they can do to get help. But if we can provide somewhat of a safety net um, just as a community, then I think that that's enough to, to, you know, at least start helping the industry. And that's what we've done. Hell yeah. Well, good. It's quite a cause. And I think a lot of people can get behind it. And with Bitcoin at $23,000, hopefully some of my listeners will have a little extra change in their pocket and feel generous. So um, I will include that link in the show notes. And I'll, I'll probably tweet it after, after I record this episode, just to bring attention to it because I do think it's important and I think it's a worthy cause. I, can you believe I sold all my Bitcoin at 18,000? Oh, no. Well, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of in that boat. I've been, I, I mean, I, I certainly have taken profit on the way up as well. And I just think that's good practice, but um, there's an old saying in crypto, you always want to keep a moon bag because you never know how high it'll go. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't sell all of it, but uh, I sold enough of it to be able to uh, get those special soaps that my wife loves. <laughs> <laughs> well, a happy wife's just as important in my opinion. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting through this. I know it's a tough time, so hang in there and hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel now with the, the vaccine and spring around the corner. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was good chatting with you. Um, um, you've got a, a heck of a reasonable mind. So uh, it was nice walking around in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Likewise. And um, yeah, uh, for my listeners, they can find you. What what What's your Twitter account again? Uh, Chef Gruel, at Chef Gruel. All right. G-R-U-E-L. Yes. And uh, your website, Slapfish, is that Yes, slapfishrestaurant.com. Um, I also have chefgruel.com. Um, and then I'm Andrew Gruel on Instagram. I'm pretty active uh, and verbose up there as well. Yeah, I know. I always see those lobster rolls you post. And I'm like, damn it, I wish I was on the West Coast for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all my listeners who are in the radius of a slapfish restaurant, call them up, order a carryout lobster roll or, or 20. Bingo. <laughs> all right, Andrew. Well, take care and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.